0: Hello, welcome to Medicine on Box Voices. My name is Sam Giglani. Here we go in pursuit of conversations about medicine, not just about what it is and what it does, but about what it means, about the whole surprise of human life, its inevitable weathering, and the challenge of how to care for all of us. Hello I'm here in Lancaster University today with Jen Ashworth. Jen is a writer of fiction including four novels. She's a lecturer in creative writing at Lancaster University and a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature. Her most recent book, Notes Made While Falling, is a, um, a meditation, I guess, on illness, language, the fragility of life, meaning, hope, storytelling, writing, everything. And it blew me Completely away. Um, to be, to be honest, Jen, welcome to Medicine Unboxed Voices. Thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, you say you, you said to me, doctors make you nervous. Yes. Why?
1: Um, because I, I imagine when I am in the room with a doctor that there's a diagnosis happening. ..or not happening, that there is a kind of, um, authority that this doctor has or believes that he might have. A he. A he, yeah, yeah. And I've seen lots of women doctors as well. But, um that the he or she believes they might have to tell me a truth of what's going on inside better than I could tell it.
0: And to be wrong? Um. Or just that, that, just the belief in their own version. Yeah,
1: yeah, that their version of me is the right one, (laughs) and this is why we go to doctors because something's going on inside that we don't understand, and we would like some expertise on it. And it is, it's how I have been helped by doctors as well. But it it is a really, it brings out an inner twelve-year-old in me that wants to be quite um, sort of break windows and shout.
0: I'm yeah. not going to do that today.
1: I'm going to sit nice in this chair. I don't
0: believe you, but, you're, but we've both agreed we're allowed to swear. Definitely. Yep. All right. So, just going back to your 12-year-old, I'd like to. I, I do want us to talk about your encounters with medicine. Okay. If that's all right, but I'd like to start by just asking you about 12-year-old Jen. Yeah. Because you had a. Um, the tussle with authority both with, both with parenting and yes. and with religion. Yes. You're you right to say a bit Absolutely.
1: about that. Absolutely. Yeah, um so I was brought up in um a LDS family, a Mormon family, and um, we lived in Preston. a working class upbringing. Um you know, I never went without food, but it wasn't um a particularly privileged upbringing. Um my dad was not a member of the church and he was quite a Kind of angry, sometimes violent person. And around the age of, I think I was about 11, I Refused to go to school. Suddenly? Suddenly. I think I'd been going about a week and then I just decided that I didn't like it and I wasn't going to go anymore. I was a very bookish child. This is what the teachers all said about me. She's very bright. She's going to do great at high school. And I went and decided that that wasn't going to happen. And I didn't go. And that opened the door for lots of authoritative professionals of varying types to get involved. So there were doctors, GPs, um child psychologists, social workers, education, welfare officers, um, all kinds of people whose job it was to tell me what was wrong with me and to tell my parents what was wrong with me. Um, The authority figures in my faith community that I was brought up in, that's how I experienced them as well. It was their job to tell me what was wrong with me. And that is how I experienced the world as as a child. When I think about that and when I really get in, you know, really get into the body of that 12 year old again, I think, gosh, it was no wonder I was so angry. You know, I was difficult. I refused to go to school. I ran away. I broke things. I was quite violent sometimes. Um, I was pretty horrific to, to bring up and... I think I'd felt a lot of guilt about that for a long time and I didn't understand why I'd acted like that. But now when I look back and I think that's what the world was to me, it was a series of grown-ups telling me what was wrong with me.
0: Do you think that's, to some degree or the other, a common experience of a a young, pre-adolescent child?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean... I guess, you know, the the thoughts I was thinking and the feelings I was feeling, I think, were reasonably typical adolescent growing pain type stuff. I was very extreme in my emotions and in my thoughts and in my behaviour, but I think the environment that I was in was quite extreme as well. That my experience of Mormonism was quite authoritarian. Um, My experience of being parented was was quite difficult. My experience at school was very difficult too. Um, It's quite hard to be solely valued for being good at doing essays.
0: It would have been, I guess... Unimaginable then to you and to those around you that we'd be sitting here having this conversation in Lancaster University with you supervising PhDs.
1: I still think it's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> when I stand at the front of the lecture theatre and um, I'm sort of clearing my throat and <laughs> beginning to give the lecture. I really want to tell all my students about you know the years of my life that I spent hiding in parks so that I didn't have to go to school.
0: <laughs> Your mother com- comes across as Extraordinary in the book, mm. in, in, in some of the things you describe about her, and particularly her um, when she sort of escaped almost to roller coasters. Mm. What happened there?
1: Um, my parents split up when I was 13, um, and my mother, for a period of time, it felt like a really, really long time, and maybe it was only a few months, but she used to go to Blackpool Pleasure Beach. I ride the big one. It's like the biggest roller coaster in the world, or it felt that way at the time. And she used to do that. She had the key rings, and she used to snip the edges of the key rings. And we've we've never really spoke about it, so I can only speculate on what that meant to her, what that meant to her. But watching it from the outside as a a young person and being kind of baffled and thinking, "Oh gosh, you know, my parents are really weird," mm. and then looking back at it as an adult. And being a mother, and being a really weird mother myself, <laughs> um, and having all these eccentricities help me, uh, maybe not to understand, but to make an imaginative leap as to what might have been going on there.
0: What did you think it was?
1: I think if it was me doing it, what would appeal to me would be that sense of being strapped in tight and safe, and feeling fear at the same time. Sort of, I don't know, a controlled catharsis. And I don't know, you know, you'd have to ask my mum what was going on to get the proper facts. But
0: But you go from there, talking about that, to consistently talking about the... um, You talk about derailment in the real world, and derailment within ourselves, Mm -hmm. as a running metaphor through this um, book... And you almost, as a writer of fiction, which is premised largely on clean, coherent narratives, start to question that, start to question the veracity of that way of understanding or describing the self or the world.
1: Yeah. I think there's a a, a quote in the book, I think it's David Lodge, who's talking about Virginia Woolf, I think, and he Mm. mentions the railway line Mm. of the sentence Mm. and plot as Mm. well being like a train track, and we're we're on it, and we're safe, and we sit on the train, and we don't have to do anything, and we will get to where we want to be. And that is how I live my life: sentences and plots. Mm. That was that was the safe place for me. Believed
0: it, or always wondered about the sense of it. No, I believed it. it.
1: Bought it entirely. That that this. the precision and the capaciousness of fiction allowed us to meet the world in a way that was real and meaningful. And I, I do still think that. Yeah. But there was a time where I tried to apply sentences and plot to my own experience of being in the world and being unwell, and it didn't work.
0: That's where it folded.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And interestingly, you do talk about certain, many... Um, renowned writers have tried to um, navigate the whole business of being unwell through language and um, fiction and writing. So you talk about people like Virginia Woolf or mm-hmm. Hilary Mantel. Mm-hmm. You, you, with your um, period of being unwell, your illness, felt that fiction couldn't meet this. Yeah. Is that true? Or...
1: I did feel that, and yeah. I do. And I suppose the two questions that the book explores are, um, what, what is wrong? What's wrong with me? That I couldn't do it? Like, me, right. me, the novelist, that's my job. Yes. To hold experience in sentences, in plot, and I couldn't. Mm. What's wrong with me? Is
0: that a personal failing Almost. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. And the other question was what is wrong with a novel mm. what's wrong with sentences and plots that mm. it cannot hold this intense real thing that is happening to me and happens a lot all to lots of people mm. it's very ordinary mm. to to be derailed mm. um and so i set i mean i'm making it sound like quite a logical process and i had some research questions and then i set off and wrote the book and it wasn't like that at all the questions emerged from the mess of failed attempts at this book and I don't think the book provides a a neat or a satisfactory or even adequate answer to those questions.
0: Self-fulfillingly,
1: yeah. Yeah, it just looks at them in from lots of different directions, through my own experience, through literary and cultural theory, through the experience of other writers, through the experience of fictional characters. I don't know how um, scientifically reliable that is as a means of investigation, but I looked at it through all the lenses that were at my disposal, and the process of looking, it didn't give me an answer, but it returned my curiosity to me.
0: And it's interesting you say how scientifically reliable, because I guess no science is really going to get at the experience no. of this, is it? No. Oh, qualia of it. No. Just can we, is it all right to ask a bit about what happened?
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, the the story as um, the kind of memoir bit of the story that is in the book is told in a very fragmented kind of time out of joint way. So it's probably helpful for me to do a bit of a potted <laughs> summary. Um, so um, in 2010, I had a baby and there was a scheduled elective caesarean. I don't like calling it elective because it made it sound like I
0: Holiday.
1: I was asking for it. <laughs> <laughs> A scheduled non-emergency caesarean, which I had, um, and the baby was fine. He came out fine, and I went into recovery. And while I was in recovery, um, the I started to hemorrhage, and I didn't notice because... I was. Um, I had an epidural and my husband noticed and he told the nurses and they took me back into theatre and they reopened the wound and as they were doing that, the anaesthesia wore off so I started to be able to feel it but I couldn't move and I tried to tell them a couple of times.
0: Feel, um, feel the pain or feel yeah, the bleeding, both? Both, yeah.
1: both. <clears throat> I heard my blood hitting the floor um, and they put me under. They, you know, this, this experience was my entire life for many years and it was also probably a minute. Hmm. Um, they they put me under, they gave me a general anaesthetic and when I and they they fixed what was wrong. And when I came round they were wheeling me somewhere where the baby was, where my husband was. And I I couldn't breathe and I could feel the mask on my face getting tight and I was itchy and I was trying to tell them that I couldn't breathe but I couldn't really speak and there's a big chunk of time that's very hazy. I know what happened, but it's difficult for me to say what it felt like because I was kind of in and out of consciousness. I was very frightened. Um, I was restrained on the bed and they were putting things in my mouth. I was having anaphylaxis, Mm. which was probably as a result of a really big blood transfusion that I needed to have. And it, it, it was... Also, miraculous in that um despite having this experience, which is not uncommon, a lot of women have horrific birth experiences um the baby was okay, I was okay, and went home, and I became really unwell very quickly um I stopped sleeping days yeah yeah I would say I was in hospital um, I think over a week and even when I was in hospital I was starting to get very paranoid I thought that the um the nurses the midwives were talking about me I was near the midwife station um and when the phone rang I thought it was people ringing to warn the nurses to watch me with the baby to make sure that I didn't hurt the baby and it
0: you were convinced of it, it wasn't... Yeah, were, it was yeah, solid. I
1: was convinced and I didn't tell anyone because I thought that I wouldn't be... I guess there was two things happening. I thought people wouldn't believe me and I thought I shouldn't let the cat out of the bag that I knew what was going on. Because. I should, because then I I thought I'd go to jail. Hmm. Yeah, I did. Is
0: and it then, all right talking about this? Yes, yeah. it
1: is, it is. It's, I'm, I'm finding it really tricky to kind of make it sound remotely... Plausible, because I don't feel that way anymore. So it's very difficult to communicate that... I know it sounds ridiculous and irrational and crazy and there's a bit of me that wants to say, you know, and and I should have just said to someone that's how I was feeling and then they would have given me a tablet and made it go away, but I didn't.
0: But not at all ridiculous. Um, Not at all.
1: It was... um, I regret Hmm. not... Mm. not um, saying that I was ill, but I didn't know that I was ill. Mm. And when I got home, I was very angry, um, I was very paranoid. I started drinking because I couldn't sleep at all. Mm. Um, And so I used to drink to try and get to sleep and then that got me in a lot of trouble and stopped working. And it went on for a a really long time. Mm. Hello. I think I was very, very ill until my son was maybe about two. Right. And Mm. I was quite ill until he was about five. Yes. And I I think I was only... I don't really know what getting better means. Mm. I still find it very difficult to come to terms with the fact that that happened, that that's possible, to lose your grip.
0: When you say that I don't really know what getting better means, hmm. is that, in a sense, the question you're asking in this writing?
1: Yeah. I think when I started to try and write about it, I felt the pressure of genre. That if it was going to have a plot, it would need to have some resolution, some end point. And if it was going to be a memoir... um. Generally, when people write memoirs about being ill, they're really stories about getting better. Um, And I didn't have any of those stories to tell.
0: And do do you think there's a clamour for that? Do you think we, when I say we, a society, the medical profession, but also a readership, wants the kind of full arc and the, you know the reaching of the, of the like insights at yeah. the end the like the, yes
1: yeah. yeah yeah I think so um I think I think it's a wish I think it's a lovely wish it's what you know when people read this book and quite often they say to me are you better now and and that is uh maybe there's two things going on there one is um I care I hope you are no longer suffering and the other is this is hard to hear. I I want to know that it's stopped, that it's finished. Yes. There's there's no more of this.
0: What well, a retreat from the sorrow. Of it.
1: Yes. And and yeah, I'm a reader like everyone else and I like the, the, the good ending and the insight achieved and the wisdom shared and we go to books for that. And I guess I just didn't have that. I did not have that type of story to share. So if I
0: say to you now, are you better? the question's almost the wrong
1: question. It do, yeah, it doesn't quite make sense to me. No. I I I think that I live pretty well with the knowledge of how badly things can go wrong right. and how helpless we can be in the face of that. Mm. And it's it's a, something I have to it's a practice rather than something that I got and that's it now. Um it's not all in the rear view mirror it's every day and i I don't know if what burst into my family life and my professional life was illness or if if it was um that I was faking being well (laughs) up until that point and that actually being unsure of what was real and not and being very vulnerable and being very frightened and being very raw in the world, that is just my natural way of being and other people's natural way of being. I don't know. I don't know.
0: But it calls into question, doesn't it, what we mean by all of these terms. And you, I'm sure, will be the first to acknowledge there's a spectrum here and at one end of the spectrum will be terrible um, suffering or risk of harm to self or others which might legitimately be pathologised and you know within diagnostic criteria and therapeutics and the like but to the left of that is a vast grey expanse that's normal or abnormal,
1: both. yeah. When I was so ill and i'm I'm not in that place anymore, but when I was so ill that I thought I had suicidal feelings almost every day um i I was too ill to even want healing to even be able to imagine that that was possible and now i I do feel like have there has been some healing, but I also do't want anesthesia.
0: Quite recently, we talk about the difficulty, the tussle of writing about it, or, or yeah, the challenge of writing about this. Why even think about writing about it? What you know, in a sense,
1: I ask myself every day when I was working on this book. Um, is it
0: because that's your mode of interrogating the world? Yes, and yes. necessary to it. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The writing is how I am in the world. It's yeah. how I let the world touch me. And how I touched the world. And, you know, I, I, I was working. I worked on other things. I published other things. But there was this one story about what it felt like to have had this experience that I was worrying and worrying away at for years and years and years. I didn't think I would publish it. I wasn't trying to make something... make a product out of suffering um, or anything like that. I was I was trying to... Put it on the paper so I could see it. And um, I think at times it was quite compulsive. It, you know, it's one of the questions that I raise in the book, and I definitely think about that kind of compulsive worrying away, thinking, imagining, reimagining. Some of my symptoms were psychosis. How is that different to frenzied, involuntary imagining? There's, there's, The writing itself was quite unhealthy at times, is I guess what I'm trying to say. Unhealthy
0: because it was painful. Yeah. But, so for you, that pain was necessary. When when you say it's how you meet the world or contact the world, so you're... It's more than just trying to communicate something to me as a reader. It's almost making sense of it to yourself, is it?
1: Yeah. I think that's how my writing changed because of being ill and because of writing this book that previously... I wanted to use writing to speak, to communicate something about the way I saw the world, the way I imagined the world might be. And afterwards, it's more about listening. It's more of a process by which I shed um, my layers, my armour, my certainty, my expertise, and let the world get me. And it does hurt.
0: Yes, but that's okay.
1: Yeah, it's good too.
0: I just wondered if you might say a bit about where you, where where to me anyway, you seem to arrive, which um, is the old Elliot mind, at the end of All our exploring will be to where we started and know <laughs> yes. no, or not to know the place. Of, but you you arrive at this conception of the idea just the fact and the idea of our human fragility that is yeah. shared.
1: Yeah.
0: And that, in many ways, is an obvious thing. It's, it's stated over and over, but you articulate it and clearly feel it very, very, precise, very, very um, precisely in the book. Can you say a bit about... I mean, you may not be able to attach precise language to it um, now, but what is that feeling... It's that recognition?
1: Um, you know, before I was ill, I was ill. Oh. I, was, I was struggling with lots of wounds from childhood, as we all are, mm. and the way I dealt with them was with competence of varying kinds, kind of professional and creative and kind of control strategies and, and all this stuff. And, you know, it didn't work... <laughs> And then I, I got to the end of the book. And the last chapter I wrote very quickly. And I and I wrote it last. That doesn't always happen, you know, we kind of write out of order, but it really is the last. It really is where my thinking brought me to. And it was something to do with the truthfulness of our utter vulnerability and the lack of control we have, and maybe a kind of acceptance that. The world is not how I want it. Other people are not how I want them to be. I am not how I want myself to be. My wanting is faulty and and blind and self interested, and I cannot fix or do anything about any of that. And it feels like vertigo to kind of to to really properly hold on to that and to to know it through experience. And this is a truth that I think people better developed than me probably manage in their early 20s. And I'm a a light comer to it. Oh, I don't know. Do
0: you think? I think we're all retreating from it all the time.
1: Yeah, you know, me too, all the time, every day, all kinds of strategies, but I catch myself doing it. And when I don't do it, there's that sense of falling, of vertigo, of of fear, but also one of great joy and safety hmm. and i didn't know that and,
0: and that's think, that's where
1: i got at the end of the book but do
0: you think that recognition of almost completely shared perpetual fragility yes. contingency yeah you're not saying that's an abdication from our responsibility no. to others and that actually you know we'd admit that sitting here in a comfy office in um is very different to the fragility being perceived Absolutely. by people
1: in yes. other parts of the world. Yes.
0: But that even given that gradient, mm-hmm. the baseline yeah. is one of always being yes. precarious.
1: Yes, that is the for me, the this isn't illness. Having that sense, feeling that, feeling it very, very keenly. Struggling to live while feeling that is not being ill. That's no. that's probably been quite sane. Yes. and And yes, you know, it is different and we are cushioned in ways that make us feel safe while doing untold harm to others. Mm. Me, you, everyone listening to this. And it doesn't nullify our responsibility to for activism, for, for change. It makes it possible.
0: Because? Because... because,
1: because I don't. I don't feel so defended. I don't feel so different.
0: And you recognise you. You have exactly that in common with yes, yes others.
1: Yeah, not all the time. You know, I still like call cool people. We, we are doing swearing, aren't we? Yeah. I still like shut dickhead out of yeah. the window when I'm driving. Yeah. You know, it's, it's 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 all of that. It's it's I am all the things that I was, and this which is new. And that was the bit of the book that surprised me. We talked about how I would end a book like this. There was not... The kind of climatic scene, the resolution, the book you you gave that like brilliant quote from George Eliot, the book does end where it starts. I begin um being cut up on an operating table and I end the book lying down on a uh, a city and um, being painted by someone uh, which which felt kind of similar in lots of ways, so it does end where it begins. There was no big leap forward. It was just the, the tiniest change that meant everything.
0: Do you, what does that mean for the idea of hope then? If if, if you arrive at an idea that the perpetual falling is just the human condition, that's yes. what human life is.
1: Yeah.
0: Does that mean that hope is redundant? Or that we hope for the wrong thing?
1: I, I think um, hope is... Probably, a bit like I don't know, booze and fags and shopping and the sex and
0: analgesic
1: or not. It, it kind of depends on how you use it. We can use hope to anaesthetise ourselves to the reality of our current situation, or we can use it to power activism that comes from love. Hmm. Um, so, so both of those things. I I know that for me, I only started to with compassion towards other people once I had fully been able... It's very paradoxical, it makes no sense Mm. at all, but fully accepted just the brokenness of everything. Mm.
0: And And I just
1: really want to emphasise here that I'm kind of not... Trying to sell myself as some kind of guru <laughs> or saintly figure. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about how these words might be taken out of the conversation. Well, to listening, I just want to testify it, to that. absolutely dreading it. No, well, it's, it's hard it's not olden- to sound sanctimonious. It's and just, I just yeah, it's pedestrian, and I, isn't it? And Stop. I kind of, you know. I guess what I wanted to emphasise so much was how ordinary this is about yeah. how my experiences of, um, you know, a difficult childhood and being parented in a in a well-meaning but clumsy way, um, having a difficult adolescence, having a difficult birth, all of these things are completely normal. and utterly normal. And through that, just, exper- like, really trying to accept the normality of humanness, something else amazing happens.
0: Well, and part of that is also accepting the normality. I mean, in medicine we encounter this all the time, where things like um, human mortality just get so estranged from... The lexic. And yes,
1: <laughs> it's, it's, it's so, I mean, it strikes me as so unbelievably weird. And I had my first child, which was, um, you know, very ordinary birth, everything was fine, and I went home after six hours and I was pushing the pram around oh. and in complete dumbfounded shock. And, I, you know, and everybody thinks that. Everyone brings home a baby from the hospital <laughs> and goes, oh, my gosh, you oh know, yeah, yeah. yeah, what have I done? How are people mm-hmm. letting me do this? Mm. And that that people die, you know, and, and, you know, again in hospital, you know, and it is the the most mysterious, strange, obscene, incomprehensible thing and we make these buildings and people are in there wearing uniforms and, and everything's very normal oh. and it's, yeah, the world is stranger than we think.
0: <laughs> Suddenly, <laughs> Just talk a bit about, I, I haven't realised or made the link between the... The etymology between prayer and precariousness. Yes, and you 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 close by um, bringing these ideas together: mm-hmm. of fragility and prayer, and even creativity.
1: Yes, I think I was trying to get at what had changed, what was different. This isn't a book about getting better, but it is a book about change. And I was brought up a woman, and the way that I understood prayer and many Mormons will disagree with me on this but the way I understood prayer was that if you were good and you asked in the right way um God was some kind of fruit machine and would would deliver something or would manipulate the world to your liking and it never worked (laughs) it's outrageous that it didn't work and and my writing was in some ways like that I would manipulate language I would manipulate imaginary worlds in order to do something that I wanted and something changed and my understanding of prayer became it kind of doesn't matter if God is there or not at all it was about bringing my own mind into line with the way things really are and that writing create a creative practice became more about listening about being open about getting out of the way of the world
0: they sit together these (laughs) things for you openness compassion uh, you know often hijacked word openness compassion comfort with falling precariousness they're all on the same line
1: yes yeah
0: do you think, just in the last couple of minutes, you might just read us a bit from well last... Are we allowed to have that last chapter? Yes,
1: I will. So, this is a bit from the very last chapter, which is called How to Fall Without Landing, Celestial City. And I'm really pleased to read it, because I normally read from the opening, which is um, kind of slightly unhappier and more gory than this bit. To write, or to pray, or to find a home in falling means to give up hope entirely. To abandon the illusion that there's a future moment that can be striven to or imagined or drunk or eaten or earned or run or cut or dreamed towards. It means here there is no cure for the chronic condition of human nature. These are the facts that I live with. I have always lived with them, but surrendering to them entirely is the thing that finally brings the fiction back, the will and capacity to imagine, the conditions of compassion and curiosity that are essential for inhabiting the mind of a sentence, a story, a fictional other. Still, I will always struggle. And I will probably always fail to find a way to write fiction that honours these facts and does not attempt to decorate, nor numb, nor conceal them. Though now when I've come to realise that writing itself unsticks me, when I let it, it is a process that when its hopeless difficulty is adequately surrendered to, dismantles all forms of expertise, specialism and mastery. When I let the writing work, any carapace of teacherly or writerly authority swiftly dissolves into mere curiosity. It is a way of getting lost.
0: Jen Ashworth, thank you so much for speaking to
1: us. Thank you. Thanks for having
0: me. Medicine on Box keeps its large audio and film archive online. Do take a look. But for now, thank you for listening and I hope you enjoy it. (laughs)